We hit double digits last week in our episode count, and this week marks halfway to our season finale. We just kind of figure we'll keep seasons about the same length as like a regular TV show. Maybe take a week or two off in between and then just pick right back up with the next season. But welcome back, and if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. We are your hosts, Ashley and Erin. We're also on day like 527 of isolation, so we might actually be friends now. I don't know how normal that is. We're married and we're friends. Who's heard of such a strange event? Speaking of strange events, I, well, actually, I don't know if this is kind of a strange event, but um, so like we we played the Fallout games, well, at least Fallout Four. Oh, I've played Fallout Four like at least five times, so yeah. And like you know, in the game, like the currency is bottle caps. Yeah. I feel like that's a lie. I feel like the currency should be rolls of toilet paper. It yeah. It's another week later, and there are still. No rolls of toilet paper on the shelves. This is how we're going to monitor our episodes. How many rolls of toilet paper did we find this week? It's going to be a fun game, so stay tuned. That that was sarcasm. I'm not actually going to make us look for rolls of toilet paper unless we actually need it. So how's your week been, honey? Uh, it's, it's been going. You know, hysteria slowly creeping in. At least it's not as deep as a hysteria as, say people who aren't able to work right now because you just found out that you're essential to the company and you've got your papers and everything or your paper so at least you get to go to work that's that's true i am very blessed on that absolutely and even though there will be less people there at least you know there's going to be a couple people around you yeah which is nice and you know financially speaking we have been very blessed so this week is your first true crime episode oh yeah yay yay and i do know that true crime isn't you know your forte it's not your favorite thing in the world not that you hate it but it's just not you're not a crime junkie if you will no i'm i I enjoyed the spoopies and the creepy monsters so you're into more the unexplained yeah right so this week, to kind of balance that, I it, yeah, it's true crime, but it's an unsolved one, okay. so it's more open-ended and more mysterious than, say, other murders. So how are you feeling about it? I, I think I can dig this. Okay. Well, good. Also, before we get started, we're recording this episode in our living room, which is really weird, but I kind of love this setup right now. I mean, we've got hot cocoa, cookie dough... Edible cookie dough, guys. No egg. Don't worry. Some confetti cake donuts. I keep calling everything with, like, confetti or or funfetti, if you will, birthday cake. It's a problem. I need to learn my words. I can't really tell. What's the difference? There's not one. I just want to be more accurate when I speak. It's a marketing ploy. It's birthday cake. Deal with it, Krispy Kreme. (laughs) And our county just got put under the stay-at-home order so it's going to be more strictly enforced and then just a couple hours later we found out that our entire state is under it as of monday maybe this will help knock out coronavirus a little bit quicker because i am so sick of this i am so sick of reading about it and talking about it and memeing about it uh i mean in our defense we're from north carolina we literally memed a tornado out of the way (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's 
what all of us should do. We've been trying, Aaron. It's not working. Try harder, America. It's not America's fault. It's North Carolina's. We're the good bullies. That's a really contradictory phrase. (laughs) (laughs) We're delusional. Okay, back on topic. Sorry, guys. So this is going to take place in an English village. It's the murder of a young woman who uh, had some scandal in her past. Whether it was true or not, it was still there. There were no convictions, only one arrest, but, you know, no convictions. And at least from a legal standpoint, no justice was served. So whoever the person that got convicted is just... Oh, nobody got convicted. I just said that. Oh. Sorry. Arrested? Yeah, arrested. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, he or she was just a maybe murderer? Yeah, a lot of people believe this person was the murderer, but there's evidence that can point to other people. So, having said that, this week we are talking about the unsolved murder of Rose Harson in Peasen Hall, which is in England. So, let's get started. All information today was collected from strangeco.blogspot.com and eadt.co.uk. And I learned initially about this murder from a Wikipedia list of unsolved murders, so I'm going to credit them on that. So I I guess it's kind of useful to a degree. Mm. It has its moments. (laughs) So are you ready to play armchair detective, Aaron? I don't have a chair with arms. All right, we're sitting in the floor. Are you ready to play floor seat detective, Aaron? Yeah. Okay. Close enough. Come inside, meet the missus. I want to watch Labyrinth after this. We should. I'm sorry for that really offensive British accent, too, by the way. Please forgive me. It's the isolation. It's doing things to my brain. Okay. Rose Harsent was a 22-year-old woman who worked as a servant in a home called Providence Hall. I don't know why the name of the house is relevant, but we'll go with it. She was employed by a local Baptist elder. I hit the computer. I am so sorry. Let me rephrase. She was employed by a local Baptist elder by the name of Deacon Crisp and his family. Rose herself was actually a choir member at the Primitive Methodist Church in her village. And attending the same church as Rose was William Gardner. This guy was a lay elder at this church, and he was an employee at the local seed drill works as a foreman. Do you know what a seed drill is? Um, not off the top of my head, but I got a pretty good idea of what it can do. It's a, basically a machine at this point. Of course, you pushed it. It would kind of dig a little hole, drop a seed. Dig a little hole, drop a seed. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's literally what it's named. <laughs> and this dude had been married for at least 14 years to his wife, Georgina. And they had eight kids together. Oh, wow. I know. And this is the early 1900s. I'll get to the actual year here in a second. But two of those children, sadly, did not make it. But six were still living, which was actually a pretty good ratio, if you think about it, considering their lack of medical advancements. That's valid. Yeah. Um, William was also a trustee of the local Sunday school an assistant society steward. I have no idea what that is. And he was Rose's choir leader. 
Okay, so there's their connection with knowing each other. Right. And of course, if there was no connection, I wouldn't have brought them up to begin with, because that would just be really weird, and I wouldn't know where I was going with this. I mean, you know, stalkers don't have any, well, typically don't have a connection to someone besides just wanting to stalk them. I mean, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I don't think this guy was a stalker. And these two saw each other pretty frequently. I mean, they went to the same church. He directed her in choir, which I don't know what day they had choir practice, but depending on churches here, it's usually either Wednesday night, like our church, or Sunday night, like uh, my grandmother's church. But either way, they saw each other a lot. And Even both nights. Well, maybe. <laughs> or other nights that didn't have to do with choir. Because <laughs> this was... What led to a scandal? Uh-oh. Uh-huh. So, yes, William was married. Yes, they had children together. But people aren't ever really all that different, no matter what time period you look at. There are a lot of men and women who step out on their spouses nowadays, and there were just as many then. Ain't that just the way? Right. And, of course, this is all alleged. I'm not going to straight up say, hey, he did it, because I was not there. I'm way too young for that. It's one of the only cases where I can say I'm too young for that at this <laughs> point. And this was never actually proven either. But on an evening in May of 1901, two local men claimed to have seen Rose go into her employer's place of worship, which, for some reason, was called the Doctor's Chapel. Now, the employer... Her employer is... Deacon Crisp. Okay. Just to make sure I'm following. Right. He was owner of Providence House. Okay. Okay. Providence House, Deacon Crisp. And th this house was where she lived, too. She was employed there, but she also lived there. Okay. And I don't know why it was relevant that the articles I read talked about it being called the Doctor's Chapel, but point is, it was a chapel. And it was weird that she went in there because she wasn't Baptist. But, you know, maybe she was looking for a denomination that she felt more at home with, right? Yeah. Well, according to the men, they later, and not much later at that, saw William Gardner follow her inside looking very suspicious. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was 1901. People were probably bored out of their minds, like we are stuck at home. So these people went after drama or potential drama where they could find it. They were like a drama sponge. <laughs> and they crept up closer to the building and they got, I'm assuming, to a window where they could hear because they heard a woman, presumably Rose, giggle. And then what followed were noises that one can only assume are that of a couple in the throes of passion. Scandal. In a church? That is so disrespectful. Even if you're not a Christian, like, that is just straight up disrespectful. Naturally, these guys did the honorable thing and went and told everybody. Because, you know, noses don't belong on faces. They belong in other people's business. That's why they were made, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Or to be stolen. Uh, yeah, that too. A lot of baby noses getting stolen around here. Gotta solve that crime next. Anyway, the word spread even to the Methodist Church, who put William under an informal trial about his moral character. He straight up denied everything. And basically, they were like, 
bad William. Don't do that again. They slapped him on the wrist and let him on, go on his merry way. Wow. Well, I mean, there was no concrete evidence against him. It was two guys were against his and Rose's, which Rose never even made an appearance in this trial. That's odd. Well, not really. Um, she wasn't an elder in the church. Women didn't really hold position. And unfortunately, in 1901, women didn't really have any say in anything anyway. I would, I would was just thinking, wouldn't they have at least questioned her? No, because William's word would have been stronger than hers. Clearly, he's a man. If you guys can't tell, I'm being really sarcastic. So anyway, um, slap on the wrist. Everyone involved was kind of like, okay, good. This is over. We can drop it. Let's move on with our lives. Because, I mean, here's the thing. If they didn't do anything wrong, their reputations were tarnished by this, and they were humiliated if they... And if they were guilty, nobody wanted to walk around town being judged by everyone they passed. So regardless of whether they were innocent or guilty, they were hoping this would blow over. But there was a particularly invested individual by the name of Henry Rouse. I don't actually know if it's Rouse or Roos, but I'm saying Rouse because it's spelled like mouse, and that's kind of how he acted. Like a rat, basically. This guy happened to be a lay preacher. And I don't really know why he was so invested in what was going on. I mean, it could have been jealousy over Gardner's position in the church. It could have been that he had his eye on Rose. I honestly can't say. But this guy, he claimed to have seen Rose and William Gardner walking down a lane together one night. The scandal. But why Why would that be such a big deal? I mean... If it was late at he night. He was a married man, seen with a woman he wasn't married to. Oh, no. But what if he was just trying to be a gentleman and, you know, made sure she got home safe? I mean, given the position of where they lived to each other, it actually makes sense that he could have been escorting her home. Yeah, just a no good deed goes unpunished, I guess. If he was, in fact, doing a good deed. Right. And... After seeing them, Rouse took it upon himself to lecture Gardner because, you know, he's such a stand-up guy already. And Gardner responded with, you know, and I'm sorry, and I promise I'll be more careful not to put myself into a position where people could think the worst of me. I'll do better next time. And then Rouse claimed that once, as he was giving a sermon, he turned to the choir, I'm assuming choir loft, and caught Gardner with his feet in Rose's lap. What? How would that work? I mean, we're clearly American, and we've been to churches before. We go to a church. Yeah. And the way our choir loft is set up, there is literally no way that could go down without every other member of the choir seeing that. And maybe even the... Congregation? Yeah. Right, because you would have to turn your body to do it. I just don't understand how that would work. That feels very fabricated to me. Yeah. And I don't know how everybody else was believing this guy. Then, towards the end of 1901, whether Rose had been in a sexual relationship with Gardner or not, she had been in a sexual relationship with someone because she found herself pregnant. What? Now, Rose did her best to hide this fact at all cost because it would have resulted in termination from her job 
and it would have ruined her even further because she already had a poor reputation after what had happened in this big scandal, remember? But clearly she couldn't hide it forever. Well, it really depends. I actually watched an episode of Wives with Knives. I think it's season four, episode one. The woman being interviewed, she found herself pregnant after being raped. It was it was really heartbreaking. And she decided that she was going to keep this baby. Right. And she made sure that she didn't eat much every day so that she didn't really gain any weight. And she hid her pregnancy the entire time. And she had this kid. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that a couple of people didn't know her secret. They did, and I'll get to that. But she still tried to hide it, and to the people who did know, she refused to name the father. And keep in mind that back then it was deemed quote-unquote proper for a woman who became pregnant to marry the father of her child before she began to show. That way both of their reputations weren't tarnished. Again, what is with reputations, guys? First of all, people need to stop being so judgy. And second of all, we need to stop being so worried about people judging us. Everyone just needs to put away their judgery. Judgery do. Judgery do. <laughs> but the theory behind why Rose didn't marry the father of her child is because he was not in a position to marry her. I.e., he was married already. But it could have honestly been for a number of reasons. She could have not wanted to tie herself down to a man. She could have decided that she didn't want to ruin his reputation, because, again, reputations, and that she would do this on her own. Or it could have been, and I hate to say this, but unfortunately, even in 1901 it happened, it could have been that she found herself pregnant by a man that she didn't want to be with, if you get my drift. Right. But, I mean, honestly, in the end, none of those answers or theories really even matter because she didn't live long enough to bring her child into this world. Mm. Now, Mr. Harson, Rose's dad, he got up on the morning of June 1st, 1902. Rose would have been about six months along at this point, and again, she was still trying to hide her pregnancy. Mr. Harson collected his daughter's laundry that she had left at her actual home probably from a weekend visit, and made his way over to Providence House. Mr. Harsent walked into the kitchen and saw something really strange near a staircase, and he got closer. And unfortunately, what he saw was not good. His heart must have shattered because he found his daughter's body burnt and bloody. Oh, God. Rose was still wearing her nightdress and a pair of socks, which indicated that it happened sometime in the middle of the night because she didn't have time to get up and get dressed for the day. Authorities were notified, and the investigation revealed several stab wounds to her chest and her throat had been slit. And to make matters worse, she had been set on fire, which left her arms and lower body charred. This kind of sounds like whoever did this knew that she was pregnant, because, I mean, like, your lower body. Yeah, stabs to the chest. Well, I mean, that's above a pregnant belly. Ah, uh, yeah. But you stop life force to the mother. You're stopping life force to her child. Yeah, but then lighting her on fire. That feels like overkill to yeah. me. And very, it feels like rage. I can't, I'm not a criminologist, I don't know, but it feels very rage-fueled. Like, my first thought is maybe she was going to, come clean and then whoever 
the father was was like, uh, no. Not happening. You know, that's not a bad theory. And the postmortem examination revealed a bruise on her face and jaw, and her hands had wounds that indicated she tried to fight back, or at least tried to defend herself. By her body was a broken lamp, and of course, 1901, they used oil lamps a lot, and there was also a broken medicine bottle that had been filled with some type of substance. Well, the broken lantern, that could definitely explain the fire, but wouldn't that have spread? You know, that's such a good question. I don't know. I don't study accelerants, and I don't study fire, because honestly, that's probably one of the worst ways to go, and it frightens me. Now, this medicine bottle was a pretty big clue, because the label on it read, quote, for Mrs. Gardner's children. What? The medicine label yeah. on the bottle with the substance said for Mrs. Gardner's children. Which meant that Mrs. Gardner had made a call to the doctor and said, hey, my kids are sick. He filled a prescription, whatever it was, and she picked it up. Now, what was in this bottle, I don't think was what was given to her children. But it clearly came from the Gardner household. What was inside the bottle? I've read two different substances. One was paraffin, and that's not to be confused with the accelerant that's like kerosene or paraffin wax. It was probably more of the paraffin that people use for probably um like an emulsion. Okay, so like I don't know But like I'm not sure to like to for fat dry skin? I don't know. I read up on it a little bit, but there are literally three types of paraffin. Wax, the uh I'm gonna call it an accelerant. I don't really know what it's supposed to be called. And the medicinal use stuff. But I also read that it was camphor oil, which is used for colds. Okay. But either way, it's not even really important to this case. And also near Rose's body was a charred bit of newspaper that had been taken from the Anglican Daily Times. And the Crisp family, you know, Rose's employers, they didn't subscribe to this paper. But the gardeners certainly did. But honestly, so what? They weren't the only family who subscribed to that paper. I have never heard of a newspaper that runs just to appease one person or one family. That'd be an awfully... Rich family? Yeah, rich family or very poor business. You're right. I mean, but it didn't stop the police from suspecting William Gardner for that. So it's already not looking good for this guy, okay? Yeah, that's at least two things against him. Well, I guess technically three because of his reputation with Rose. Valid. And also on the scene was a large pool of Rose's blood, which checks out. She had her throat slit. She was stabbed. Makes sense. But there were no footprints left in her blood. And if her body was by a staircase, I can only imagine this was kind of a close quarters homicide. So how did Rose's killer take her life without leaving footprints? That's a very good question. There is a theory, and it goes that after this killer stabbed her, what they did was they turned, she was still standing, and they turned her toward the wall before they slit her throat, meaning that they would have been behind the blood and not in it. Even the uh, the initial stabbing in the chest? Well, it doesn't say how deeply she had been stabbed in the chest. And also, if he he or she or whoever stabbed her deeply enough, they could have easily stood in the blood at some point. But the blood from Rose's 
throat, once it was slit, would have pulled, covering any footprints, too. Okay. And because they were behind her, they wouldn't have left anymore. Oh, so you're saying, like, no, wait, what if they did all the stabbing from behind? You know, that's not a bad theory. And then all of the blood would have been placed in front of her from a standing position. I don't know how they found her laying, if she was on her front or back. But, I mean, either way, that's not a bad thought. Police wound up searching the entire Providence house for literally any clue that could point to a killer. Because even with all the quote-unquote evidence at the crime scene, it just was not enough for the police's satisfaction. And what they turned up was a letter in Rose's room that said, quote, I will try to see you tonight at 12 o'clock at your place, but if you put a light, I'm sorry, rephrase, if you put a light in your window at 10 o'clock for about 10 minutes, then you can take it out again. Don't have a light in your room at 12 as I will come round to the back. But I mean, that's a two hour difference. She could have fallen asleep or something. Yeah, that would explain the nightgown. Which says to me that it must have been pretty important. Yeah. And some people believed that the handwriting of this letter or note or whatever you want to call it matched that of Mr. Gardner's, but not everyone thought that. And the envelope that the letter came in was the same kind of envelope used at his place of employment. But again, playing devil's advocate here, he wasn't the only employee at the seed drill works, and other companies probably used the same type of envelope because Like the newspaper, that envelope production company is not going to survive on just one purchase. Nope. Or one buyer. I got a quick question. Sure. What if someone forged his handwriting? That crossed my mind, too. I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to go ahead and fess up that I don't know if his wife did it, but she does have opportunity, and if the affair is correct then she has a pretty good reason to hate Rose. Right. So who would know her husband's handwriting better than she would? And I mean, there's probably so many articles of letters and stuff or anything that's got his handwriting on it that she could easily take the time to try to... Mimic his handwriting. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I'm just going to say, basically everything we've seen so far is just circumstantial evidence. Nothing is concrete. And without DNA testing for decades yet at this point, they couldn't exactly tie him to Rose and her baby either. Gardner only lived about 200 yards. Remember when you came up with the theory of he might have been escorting her home? Right. When Rouse, or however you say his name, Sar, he only lived about 200 yards away from Providence House. And that's only about 183 meters, or if we're doing feet, that's 600 feet away. That's not very far at all. Almost like spitting distance. I mean, with, yeah. Just a hop, skip, and a jump away. And that did mean that he was close enough that he could have killed her. And there was a neighbor, and trust me guys, there are a lot of neighbors in this story. I'm not going to name any of them because it's just too many people to keep up with. But this neighbor recalled seeing Gardner on his porch around 10 p.m. the night before Rose was discovered, so the night of the murder, which was the time that the note instructed Rose to have that candle in her window. That neighbor also recalled seeing a light 
in the window at the top of Providence House. But did that neighbor recall Mr. Gardner standing out there for, what was it, 10 minutes? I don't know. I don't know about 10 minutes, but the neighbor was actually having a conversation with him. Okay, so that's If kinda... it was the same neighbor. A, a neighbor was having a conversation with Mr. Gardner out on his front porch. Okay. So that would have been perfectly good reason to be outside. Yeah. And they were probably talking about the storm coming in and how they planned on handling it. Because, I mean, that had to be scary. Here in modern day, we have the hum of electrical things. We can put on a movie. We can listen to music, whatever. Everything back then was pretty silent. So storms were much louder, much more intense. It probably wasn't fun to sit through and endure, right? This maybe you had like one of those like aluminum or tin roofs and just that's just peaceful. Let it lull you to sleep. Yeah. A gamekeeper by the name of James Morris, I mistyped that, but I remember it was James Morris. He testified that he had been out around 5 a.m. on June 1st, which is the day that Rose was discovered, and he had seen muddy footprints leading from Gardner's home to Providence House, and he had sketched them for police evidence. I'm sorry, what? A sketch from memory is admissible in court in 1902? But how how could that sketch... Be admissible? Yeah, be a, admissible. I honestly have no idea. And how would he even know? Well, I guess the, the track... Of shoe prints leading from the house to, um, what's the place called again? Um, Providence. Providence. Yep. I mean, that I can, I can see. Sure, but you're telling me that he's going to sketch out the exact tread of a shoe? Which, let's be honest, wouldn't all treads back then look the same? Yeah. And say, here, this is it. This belongs to Mr. Gardner because it went from his house to Providence House. I don't know. It just seems... But, I mean, like, how does this guy know that that was his pair of shoes? Well, he didn't. Police did. Police put it together that that shoe print was similar to a pair of shoes that Mr. Gardner owned. I feel like it was more of a witch hunt. Like, they were trying to go after Gardner at this point. Right. But, I mean, also, who's to say that he was the one that that was wearing those shoes? Yeah, I mean, I've had that thought, too. When I take our dog out, sometimes I'll put your shoes on to go outside. Our feet are very different sizes, but it doesn't mean that I can't wear your shoes. I mean, I can't wear yours because they're too little. Right. But I'm just saying that Mrs. Gardner, Georgina, she easily could have put on his shoes and made that trek across the 600 feet, done the deed, and went back home. Also, if James Morris saw these tracks leading from the Gardner home, to Providence House, why didn't he see any going back? There should have been a second set of footprints. I didn't even think about that, but yeah. But I don't want to, you know, stick on this too much. And like I said, it Mr. Gardner was talking about the storm, if I'm not mistaken, the night before. And it did storm pretty heavily the night before Rose was discovered. And yeah, so whoever went out into that mud would have left shoe prints. But again... It's also possible that other men had a similar pair of shoes. That's true. And even though all of this 
evidence, and I use that term very loosely considering one piece of evidence is solely from the memory of a quote-unquote witness. And even though all this evidence against Gardner was circumstantial, police pegged him as their prime suspect. Because the theory goes that Rose had arranged a midnight rendezvous, which I don't understand how that's the theory because the letter was sent to her, not the other way around. Right. But she set up a rendezvous with Gardner to convince him to support her and her baby. And he killed her so he wouldn't have to take care of her. Or the baby. Or the baby. Because he wasn't made of money, and he already had a wife and six kids at home, which couldn't have been cheap. But, I mean, once he was arrested, Gardner was true to form and just told the cops that, nope, wasn't me. He said, I'm not that child's father. What are you talking about? I have never slept with her. I certainly didn't kill her. I did not write that note. And on and on and on. But they still charged him with murder. Just trying to keep it very open and shut. I guess. I mean, for a town that's, you know, kind of like a sleepy little village, you would think that they would soak this drama up and that they would want to do the legwork and try to find as many clues as possible. Yeah. And interview as many people as possible to keep that drama going, but nope. They wanted drama that didn't inconvenience them, it felt like. So another neighbor spoke up and said that they saw Gardner lighting a bonfire near his wash house only an hour before Rose's body was discovered, and people believed that he was burning bloody clothes to get rid of evidence. But wait, wasn't that still the same night of that storm? It was the next morning. The storm had already passed. Oh, okay. I said before Rose's body was discovered, not before she was killed. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. I was trying to make sure it wasn't like he ran out in, in the middle of the storm, killed her. No, came this was back. an hour before Rose was discovered, so it was already daylight. Okay. And if he was burning bloody clothes at a bonfire, it how Lizzie Borden of him? Not that Lizzie actually burned clothes. That was just one of the theories in the Lizzie Borden case. But we're not talking about her yet. Not today. And the Crisp family said that they had heard a noise the night of the murder, but they just couldn't say what time. And no, officer, we didn't go investigate. What if they killed her? I don't think they did, but either A, they didn't want to be inconvenienced because they were already asleep, and who wants to get out of bed when you're sleeping good, right? Or B, they heard a noise and thought, we might have an intruder in our house. If we move, we could be next. But I mean, I'm just just saying like shouldn't the mr chris went and got his boomstick and we don't know that he had a gun or something well we don't know that he had any weapons in the house we don't know that he had any means of protecting his family and if he did he might have had to pass where he heard the noise coming from in order to get it Uh, fear is a very real thing and it's a very paralyzing thing i'm not saying that ignoring the sounds that should strike concern was a the right thing to do. I'm just saying that he was only a human. Time jump to November of 1902, you know, about five months later, to the trial of William Gardner. So this guy's been sitting in a jail cell for about five months now. Jeez. Even if he didn't do it. And during the investigation and the trial, it had come to light that Rose had been in possession of erotic poetry Uh scandalous, and a book on abortions. Per her request, the poetry and the book on abortions, not just the book. 
It also came to light that Rose indeed used that book to follow procedure and tried to induce an abortion herself earlier on in her pregnancy, but it did not take. The man who supplied these things to Rose was Frederick James Davis, a 20-year-old neighbor who freely admitted that he liked her and he had a desire for an intimate relationship with her. He also confessed to having written some of these poems himself for Rose directly. Oh, man, that's not sleazy at all. Does not feel kosher to me, but okay. But then again, that could have, she could have welcomed it. We don't know. I'm not saying that she did. I'm not saying what he did was okay. I'm merely saying that they could have been the ones in the intimate relationship. Valid. But the courts decided, eh, we don't like you as a suspect, dear. You can go home. Time of death had been narrowed down to sometime between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And according to Gardner's wife, William Gardner had slept until 8.30 a.m. and could not have been the one to kill Rose. But Mrs. Gardner had been unable to sleep and did not climb into bed until around 4 a.m., which did mean she was awake at the time of death. But it also meant she was awake to account for her husband's whereabouts, saying that he couldn't have done it. And I'm just going to start or stop, rather, right here and say that basically for everything the prosecution threw at Mr. Gardner, his wife had a legitimately logical reason as to why things were the way they were. Like she knew a little too much how all this worked. Or, you know, she was his wife and actually knew where he was and had, you know, actual excuses because it was true. Well, I mean, I'm just saying because... As this, the more the story progresses, it to me it just sounds like she's the culprit. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. But I also watch a lot of true crime dramas and and reenactments, and you know, true crime stories and British crime dramas that aren't true crime. But you know what I mean, Father Brown. And maybe we're just trying to spin it in our heads to where it sounds more dramatic, more intense. You know? Yeah. I mean, you never know. Maybe there's this random other person that hasn't even been introduced. Possibly. Could have been a stranger passing through the town, for all we know. Yeah. But probably not. I'm just saying. Stranger things have happened. Gardner's defense attorney, Ernest Wilde, pushed the argument that there was no actual proof of an affair between his client and the deceased woman. True. He said that Rouse was a jealous liar who hated Gardner for having a superior position in the church. Possible. Wilde said that Morris was either mistaken about the footprints or straight up fabricated the whole ordeal and just kind of sketched what he wanted. Also possible. And he said that even if Gardner had written that letter to Rose, that did not point to a homicide. Also true. That's true. So Wilde was pretty good at shutting down most of what the courts threw at him. I mean, I will say, he had a good defense. Like, this guy was born to be a lawyer. And you remember that bonfire that someone saw him building just before Rose was discovered? Yeah. Well, it couldn't have been clothing that he was burning, according to Wilde, because William only owned two shirts. 
which he swapped out every Sunday, and his wife did laundry every other week, and both shirts were accounted for and free of blood. So, also, if Rose showed defensive wounds, mm -hmm. wouldn't there have been tears in his shirt? Well, I mean, not necessarily. And... I mean, if a woman lashes out, if she's being attacked and she lashes out in order to defend herself, she could easily scratch his arm or his face. Ah, but okay. we also don't know that that was that kind of defensive wound. She could have put her arms up and covered her face with her hands or what have you in order to try to literally save face. So we don't know what type of defensive wound she had. Right. And or, unfortunately, there are no crime scene photos. Or <laughs> what if... She did lash out, you know, trying to defend herself, and maybe not so much to curl her arms in, but try to use her fingernails or and cut at whoever was cutting her, well, stabbing her. I mean, wouldn't Mr. Gardner have cuts on him? But that's if that was how she defended herself. Right. Again, we don't know. But it doesn't sound like they even tried to check him. But they may not have needed to. Uh, because she didn't necessarily defend herself in that way. Okay. I mean, it feels like lazy police work to me, but I'm just Very saying lazy that police work. You've got to there are a lot of missing pieces of this case that we simply don't have in order to ask those questions. But it sounds like all of his his shirts were accounted for. They only So he said. So he said. And so she said. And when Mrs. Gardner took the stand, as one does, she owned up to having given Rose that medicine bottle that was found by her body. Almost kind of sounded like she knew it was going to show up there. Mrs. Gardner had filled it with some type of camphor oil because Rose claimed to have been coming down with a cold some weeks back. And why is she so kind to her husband's alleged lover? Well, because she was adamant that her husband had never been unfaithful, and he and Rose were both innocent, regardless of the gossip in the village. A likely story, I say. I, I just really like her for this case, I'm sorry. Mrs. Gardner also explained away the bonfire, saying that Mr. Gardner had built it in order to boil a kettle of water. And I kept thinking... Why didn't they just use the wood stove inside? Most houses had a wood stove. That's how you stayed warm. That's how you did a lot of your cooking. Because, I mean, my great-grandma was born in 1931, and for a long time, they had a wood stove, and they took care of their their heating and some of their cooking and boiling water like that. But then I realized it was June. It's a little too hot to be lighting a fire inside a house. That makes sense. So even though I like her for this story, or for this crime, then I'm also going to give credit where credit's due. Like, okay, that can make sense. But see, here's another thing that she was just simply able to explain away. The gardener's next door neighbor also testified, and she said she had been up all night from the storm and did not see her or hear anyone leaving their house. And Rose's brother had testified that he had not assisted in any affair between his sister and Mr. Gardner. With all of the evidence being circumstantial and contradicting testimonies, the jury was left hung, but only by one jury member because it was 11 to convict and one to acquit. So they decided to retry him only a few months later. Jeez, that's got to be aggravating for this dude to be sent to jail, sit in the prison cell for months, 
have his court time. Which probably didn't take place in a day. Yeah. And then, just to be told, you gotta go right back to your prison for a few more months so we can do this all over again. And in January of 1903, trial number two began. And luckily, there's not a whole lot to get into about this trial because it was pretty basic. Like, Kristen Bell on The Good Place, ya basic. (laughs) Everything kind of stayed the same. But there was one really interesting point. Rose's brother actually changed his story. He copped to delivering love letters between Rose and William Gardner. And when they questioned him further about why he didn't say so the last time, his excuse was, must have slipped my mind. How do you forget something like that? That's literally what I wrote right there. How do you forget helping your sister carry on an affair? Yeah. It does not make sense. There's no way he forgot. Absolutely not. This feels, and the prosecutor in the second trial, Henry Dickens, yes, Dickens, like that Dickens, Charles, if you will. Henry was Charles Dickens' son. Anyway, in his closing argument, he said that the witnesses simply had no reason to lie, especially since they knew a man's life was at stake. I'm sorry, but if a town decides that you don't fit into their mold of an ideal citizen, sometimes people have been known to do whatever it takes to make sure that you leave. And that includes lying. That's true. I mean, there was this affair. They liked him to be the bad guy on this. I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying also that these people already hated Mr. Gardner. They already had a reason for him to not want to stay in Peasenhall. This guy's nothing but trouble. Right. I mean, you have to remember these people were deeply rooted in religion. I'm not saying Christianity because Christians aren't supposed to treat each other like that. And I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of calling them that. But they were so deeply rooted in religion and ritual and reputation. That's a lot of R's, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, people are harsh. They want this idealistic life in this quaint village and they don't want things shaken up by an adulterer or an alleged alleged adulterer so anyway the jury was hung again but this time it was flipped only one wanted to convict william gardner and 11 were ready to acquit that's pretty funny i feel like people at this point were thinking okay we've been at this a while now guys this guy's old news We don't care anymore. Yeah. Let's move on. And even though he was never technically acquitted, they did decide that after two tries, they weren't going to do a third, and they issued a writ of, I'm not even going to try to pronounce Latin, it's spelled N-O-L-L-E-P-R-O-S-E-Q-U-I. If any of you guys know what that means, awesome, but more awesome if you know how to pronounce it. Because what it means is they'll no longer prosecute. So Gardner wasn't, you know, quite acquitted, but he was set free. And I'm sure he was probably fine, all things considered, with that conclusion. And now we're really going to time jump. Like, a century plus later. Oh, jeez. Well, I mean, this crime has never been solved. It's, It's done, and everybody involved is dead now. But... Kevin Turton wrote a book called Britain's Unsolved Murders, and this man 
really did his legwork. I mean physically did his legwork. He visited Peasen Hall on more than one occasion, and he made sure to take in the entire layout of the land, positioning of houses, everything. And apparently, the view from Mr. Gardner's house to Providence House would have only given Mr. Gardner about a 45-degree angle, I guess, of a view of Rose's window. And Kevin says it would have been difficult to have seen the candle in the window from there. And it's because of this that Kevin believes the person Rose was to meet and or was pregnant by was not Mr. Gardner at all. And Mr. Gardner wouldn't have even really been able to see the candle. Right, that was the conclusion that Kevin made. And there's also a man named Julian Fellows. This guy was most recently a writer and producer for Downton Abbey. So if you're a big Downton Abbey fan, then here's a little tidbit of information for you about one of the people behind it. He had a show called Julian Fellows Investigates a Most Mysterious Murder. And in this show, he suggests that Mrs. Gardner may have been the culprit. And let's just consider a moment. Like I said, a wife usually has smaller feet than the husband. She could have worn her husband's shoes. That is, if the footprints were even real at all. She was awake at the time of the murder, so she could have lied and secretly harbored resentment for the woman her husband was cheating with. Again, if William was in fact cheating, and I'm not saying she did it, but she is just as likely a suspect as basically anyone else. Maybe even more. I mean, a woman scorned and whatnot, right? You right. So who do you think did it, Aaron? I I feel like it's Mrs. Gardner, and if it's not her... It's someone that's been keeping a very close, like very, very close eye on Mr. Gardner and does not like him one bit. Like Rouse, for example? Yeah, that's that's my two. I'm with you. I mean, again, it could be someone who wasn't part of the picture at all that we've been presented with, but I really like one or the other for this because all of this evidence was just so convenient to peg on Mr. Gardner. I'm sorry, if you plan on killing your secret lover, I don't think anyone is that dumb to leave your own newspaper that you subscribe to behind at the corpse of the person you just murdered, plus a medicine bottle saying for Mrs. Gardner's children. There's just, it's too convenient for me. Plus, a literal trail from his house to where she lives. That's a very valid point. It just feels way too convenient. Yeah. I, But maybe we're just giving the killer too much credit. <laughs> I mean, there have been some pretty dumb criminals out there. I, You know what? I had, a, I had an idea about the shoes. What's that? About, like you said, there's no trail back. Uh-huh. What if said killer just took the shoes off? Well, wouldn't there be footprints? Like, actual footprints in the mud? Your weight doesn't change. So you would still sink into the mud. That's true. And you'd have dirty feet. And that would lead not only on the ground, but onto your porch, into your house. 
Were there like wagon trails? I don't think so. It had stormed. And this was 5 o'clock in the morning when the guy said he saw footprints. Also, 5 o'clock in the morning is awfully early to be seeing footprints because it's kind of dark outside. Yeah. Especially in so much detail that you're able to sketch it. Yeah, it sounds... Yeah, that sounds a lot more fabricated than anything. A lot of this feels fabricated. But that's just my opinion. I don't know. So, who do you guys think did it? Let us know this week, you know, if you want to. Not telling you how to live your life. But if you want to have a conversation about who you think did it and why you think they did it, feel free to email us at crimeandtheory at gmail.com. And honestly, we would love to hear your theories about this case because we're kind of stumped. Yeah, maybe you've got a better out-of-the-box idea. Yeah. Right. And if you guys want to catch up on previous episodes, feel free to listen to the past 10 episodes plus this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really wherever you want to listen. And also, if you're on a platform that you can rate and review, a kind rating and review would be ever so lovely. And if you don't like us, that's okay. But... Honestly, please don't waste your energy on giving a poor review because all you would be doing is taking us away from someone who might actually like us. I mean, if you've been listening to every episode at this point, you must... I mean, this could be their first episode. We don't know. Well, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. And I know we're not everybody's cup of tea, so if you hate us, you know, I hope you find a podcast that you do like. Yeah. Because we don't hate you. There's a podcast out there for you. But hopefully, we're that podcast. Okay. And if you want to follow us and get clues and updates about upcoming episodes, you can follow this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Crime and Theory Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at Crime and Theory. And if you like Aaron as much as I do and want to follow him, where can they find you, Aaron? They can find me on Instagram at... I-A-A-R-O-N underscore J-W-A And if you want to follow yours truly, you can find me on Instagram at Housewife in Wonderland. Did I forget anything? I think that's it. I hope that's it. I'm sorry if I forgot something. There's so much to go through at the end. Anyway, that is it for this week. And we hope that you solved this murder because we want to know who did it. I want to know who did it. Don't forget to wash your hands and stay out of the public. Any sound advice for anybody listening, Aaron? That America needs to come together at this time, but still stay six feet apart. That is very true. Also, take your vitamins. We love you. And stay safe. Always have someone around to be your alibi because Mr. Gardner didn't, and look what that did for him. Well, I mean, he kind of did have an alibi, but you get my point with the affair. And as always, don't get haunted. We will see you guys next Thursday.